Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. It's a privilege to be here this morning. If you have a Bible with you, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we are concluding this week, I think, I'm pretty sure, I didn't write any, there's no notes following today's sermon, so I think we're concluding this uh, brief series on ecclesiology. Uh, Ecclesiology is a big word, simply meaning the study of the nature and structure of the church. Specifically, ecclesiology is the study of what the Bible says about the church, the household of God, Paul called it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Ecclesiology is a study of what the Bible says about the church, its members, its leaders, its workers, its mission, its purpose, and so on. Over several weeks, we have considered the church member who can become one. What are they? What do they do? The church elder, what are they? A pastor, a shepherd, an overseer, who can be one? What do they do? We began examining last week the church deacon by asking these questions, what is a deacon, what do deacons do, and what do deacons not do? And so we'll conclude this series today uh, looking at specifically who can be a deacon and the qualifications of uh, that person. My goal remains unchanged to equip us with a more robust view of the design and the beauty of the design that God has for his people within the local church, that we would appreciate that design more and so follow it more closely. It has been my prayer, it remains my prayer, uh, that the teaching of the word will always help and cause the church to be stronger and healthier. Uh, My prayer is that as we rightly understand the church member, the church elder, the church deacons, uh, that we will see uh, deacons raised up and installed among us that thrive in their service to the church, enabling us as a church to bring a greater glory to our God. The office of deacon, I have made this point all along, is all too often either improperly filled, poorly executed, or a source of trouble in the life of the church. But this is not what God intends, it is not what God has designed, and it is not what we should see among us. The office of deacon is beautiful, and the work of deacon is necessary. I would add this, this teaching has been for the sole purpose of instructing us to understand the role of deacon more clearly. I would add, the role of pastors all too often improperly filled, poorly executed, and a source of trouble in the church. And the role of church member is all too often improperly filled and poorly executed and uh, a source of trouble in the church. No one role or position in the church is possible of never causing a problem. And I think that as we understand that we are all capable of inserting ourselves, of being a source of contention, of being improperly in a place we don't belong or poorly executing the station that we fill, it reminds me that within the church of God and the household of God, the need for grace between brother and sister, sister and sister, brother and brother, the need for grace among God's people is so necessary because there is only one who ever perfectly filled all of these roles, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that as we learn about these, as we see faults and flaws in others, that grace will abound to us as grace has abounded to us from our Lord. 
A few reminders before we look at the qualifications of and who can be a deacon. A few reminders from the last series, which these are all recorded. If you missed one, if you want to catch up on the whole series, if you want to hear the whole teaching, if you want to hear bits and pieces, we have it all recorded. So uh, please just ask. We'd be happy to uh, make that happen. But a few reminders just to orient us. The Bible does not talk very much about deacons. There are limited passages in Scripture that actually talk about the office of deacon. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, Philippians 1, 1, and 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Those are really the only specific passages, and one of those is just an example of what would become deacons in the church. The reference in Acts is the best example we have of deacons specifically in the church. So it's interesting, the Bible does not say much about deacon, which one author points out makes it all the more important that we pay attention to what the Bible does say about deacons. We have a lot to go off of when we talk about the church member. We have a lot to go off of when we talk about an elder or a pastor, a shepherd. We do not have a lot to go off of when it comes to the church deacon. And so we must pay very careful attention to what the Bible does say. The Greek word for deacon is the word diakonos. And this is important, especially today, diakonos. It's D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S for those that feel like writing down an English transliteration of a Greek word. D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S, diakonos. It is where our English word deacon comes from. The word diakonos is found everywhere in the New Testament of God's word. Everywhere. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts to Revelation, the word diakonos is found everywhere, which becomes interesting because the word that we get the word deacon from is found everywhere. However, the role of deacon is not as prevalent as the word we get the word deacon from. Hope you followed that. It's a twisty phrase. It'll unravel a little bit as we go this morning. We have defined a deacon as one set apart by the church for the specific purpose of serving the tangible needs of the church. What is a deacon? A deacon is a servant to the church. We have identified that though all Christians are called to serve one another, 1 Peter says, as each has received a gift, let them use it to serve one another. As all Christians are called to serve one another, as Christians band together into local communities known as the church, there are going to be various needs that arise, various problems that arise, complaints that need to be resolved. And so, Though all Christians are called to serve, God has uniquely gifted various individuals within the church to see to the needs represented in the larger body. This is why deacons exist. In Acts 6, God gave us an example of this very thing. The problem arose in Acts 6 in the early church of Jerusalem. A problem arose. The elders said, appoint men to solve the problem. There's a problem. Get some men to solve it. And they put forward seven men who solved the problem. Uh, this is a great example of why deacons exist. Lastly, we've established that the primary and sole purpose of a deacon is to serve. Along with that, we established that deacons are not a governing body in the church. They do not rule or reign as an executive board, a board of directors. They are servants in the church. They serve under and alongside the elders. This point, this point especially for me, is extremely important. Though, though deacons serve under and alongside, the Bible never envisions a deacon as inferior to an elder and never uh, promotes the idea that an elder is superior to a deacon. We must keep in mind 
uh, as we understand this and as we as a church move forward with seeing deacons raised up and installed, we must keep in mind that elders and deacons serve alongside of one another. They are two distinct offices that operate in harmony for the good and the growth of the church and the glory of God. And so may we dispel that rumor. And if you ever come into contact where a church has that operating, just pray for them. You don't have to lord over someone that we think we're following the Bible in a better way. Just pray that they would see God's design and that there would be harmony among their pastors and their deacons as well. It was not coincidental for me that in a room of 150 pastors and their wives, guess who got more jokes than anybody else? The deacons. I don't like that. I, like, I, why does this exist? I submit it exists because we have not drilled down into the depths of God's word and understood his design as well as we could. So I pray as a church we will understand well the role of deacon. We will see that office filled and thriving with faithful servants. With all of this as a foundation, we come this morning to who can be a deacon and what are the qualifications of a deacon. You have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Would you look down with me and follow along as I read 8 through 13? Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers and sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this time to the teaching of your word, and it is necessary to have the help of the Holy Spirit. So we pray, Father, would you help us to understand your word better this morning, that we may honor it and glorify you in a greater way. Father, would you instruct, as there are men, I have no doubt that you are working on and working in to see raised up to serve this church as deacons. Father, would you work in all of us as all of the church is involved in this process. And I pray, Father, that as you work, we would give you glory and thanks for the work that you do among us. Father, as your word is proclaimed in many places today, here in our own town, around the state, throughout our country, indeed throughout the world, I pray Pray, Father, that the preaching of your word would humble the sinner to repentance and salvation. I pray, Father, that the holiness of your people would be promoted and that we would be holy as you are holy. And I pray that Christ, the Savior, would be exalted. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Looking at who can be a deacon and the qualifications of a deacon, I'm isolating who can be a deacon because it's a point in the world that there is one of two answers for. Who can be a deacon? As with all things in the church, many practices over a long period of time have provided various answers to this question. Now, I would say various answers, but the reality is there are only two answers to who can be a deacon. You will either get men or you will get men and women. Rarely have I encountered, though I guess it may exist because man is sinful, rarely have I ever encountered that women are to be deacons without men attached to it. So the answer is, it's either men only or it's men and women. What is the right answer? Even in our own church, here among us in this room, there are experiences and opinions as to the answer of that question. 
despite our thoughts and our feelings, we must, I pray, always seek the biblically informed answer. We must operate to understand as well as we can how the Bible directs us as God's people. We must follow that as closely as we can. And so, who can be a deacon? Men. And I intend to lay the case out for you that you can see and understand for yourself from Scripture the understanding that men are to serve as deacons in the church. As we'll see in the text of 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, and the survey of other passages, men are to be deacons. Now, I have to do some back work. This is why the qualifications and who became a separate sermon, because there's a lot to untie and then repack biblically. We are a church that is Baptist-like. That phrase was comforting to many in the room and concerning to others. Don't be scared of it. Baptist, throughout history, has been used as a word to define the doctrines of the Bible that Christians gather and believe. What does it mean, essentially? If I could boil it down into a nutshell, I would say this. It means that we believe in the authority of the Lord God over his church and no one else. Over this local body, there is only one authority, and that is the Lord God. We believe in the autonomy of the local church. We don't answer to anyone. We answer to ourselves and to the Lord. We believe in the primacy of God's word. God's word is the sole word by which all the affairs of the church are directed. We believe that believers are baptized by immersion in water. I can't wait for the day that we fill this tank and plunge a believer under the water and celebrate the work that God has done. These are distinctives of what it means to be Baptist. And for those in the room that may have thought, like everybody in this room has been a part of a Baptist church for as long as you've either been a part of Byron Baptist or the village church, you just haven't actually recognized what the distinctives of Baptist are. Now, we are Baptist-like. I say that because we do not have in our defining documents anywhere the word Baptist. So we are not officially a Baptist church. I gathered with brother pastors this past week, and all of them were pastors of Baptist churches. And all of them expressed their concern early on in this process of a Baptist church talking with the, who is this church? And as they began examining the doctrine and beliefs of the village church, they came to understand, oh, you're Baptist you just don't say you are. Correct. Please let it stand on our beliefs and not on just a descriptive word. So we are Baptist-like, not officially a Baptist church, but we are Baptist-like. Pastor, why are you saying this? I say this because in Baptist churches, you may get men only as deacons or men and women as deacons. So even in the stream that I would say we as a church swim in, there is a difference of understanding scripturally as to who can be and who should not be a deacon. I want to point out that this is a point of difference, not division. There are outstanding churches preaching the true gospel, seeing regeneration of lost souls who have women deacons. And I do not say that they are in sin. It is not a point of division. It is simply a matter of how we are going to understand the scripture before us. You know that I'm not going to say, I hope that you know, or at least you are learning, I am not going to say something like this without laying out a scriptural argument to present the case for men to be deacons as opposed to men or women being deacons. Different answers to this question come from the phrase, if you'll direct your attention to verse 11. 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. The phrase there, their wives likewise. 
this phrase can be interpreted, and I would think, if you have, especially if you have a recent copy, as uh, footnotes and understandings have been added, if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you that says, their wives likewise, if you're reading the ESV, you probably have a little number next to likewise that tells you their wives can also be translated, the women must be. If you have a Bible that actually says, the women must be, the women likewise, you probably have a footnote that says the women can also be translated as their wives. And so the answer that women can be deacons alongside men comes from our understanding of how that phrase is interpreted. This is a matter of difference, not of division. This is why I would say our brothers who practice this are not in sin. They are reading what we are reading and they are following an interpretation that we don't necessarily agree with, but we can't say you're wrong, you're in sin, and we say no to you, you're not even a church. We should be very careful with casting that type of a judgment. The phrase can be interpreted two ways. In fact, major English translations, I only counted five that render their wives. The word there I cannot pull in the Greek can be rendered either wife or woman, or widow. It has got numerous words attached to it. So even as we drill into the ancient texts, we who don't speak their ancient languages nor live in their ancient culture have to come to the best translation that we can moving forward. So we see, likewise, their wives must be, depending on what Bible you read, even perhaps in this room, Depending on what Bible you read, you can walk away from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 with one of two understandings, that it is either men only or it is men and women that may serve as deacons. Are we asking here as we read this, are we talking about women being deacons or are we talking about a deacon's wife? That, that is a question that has to be answered. At, at this church, we have defined that, we have read that and understood that, and I'm going to lay the case out further as this is talking about the wives of deacons and not women serving independently as deacons. If you have a different opinion or thought on that, that's okay. Here's the case before us. We must look to the broader text of Scripture. Specifically, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, would you look with me at verse 8? Look at how verse 8 starts. This is very academic. I apologize. I know at times people tune out when the teaching on Sunday gets too academic. I've labored to keep it you know, around my level of understanding, which is not great, so please bear with me. We're going to do some technical work here this morning. It's necessary. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be. This is following the description, verses 1 through 7, of what an elder, a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer must be. Deacons likewise must be. This means that in light of what an elder is, a pastor is, in like manner, the deacon also is to be. And we know, as we examined 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, we came to understand it is a man that is called to be a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer. Scripture is very full. We, there's no debate throughout the centuries. We have not debated. We have not, we've not misunderstood how that's translated. It's all masculine language. Men are to be pastors. The text on deacons starts and says, deacons likewise must be. So, in like manner also, the deacons. We are now looking through verse 10, 8, 9, 10. I'm not reading them. You'll notice the text stays very gender neutral. 
Let's all look at it. Don't take my word for it. Look with me. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verses 8, 9, and 10, we have no idea if we are talking about men or women. The text is neutral as to gender. And I would point out, if you read through the book of Ephesians, you will see every one of these qualifications written by Paul to the church at Ephesus for the Christian. All of us in the room, all of us in the room should be striving to live with these descriptive words named of us. Not double-tongued, dignified, not double-tongued, not a drunkard, not dishonest gain, holding the mystery of the faith. This is all applied to the Christian, remembering that the deacon is an exemplary servant among a church of servants. The deacon is one set apart by the church to serve the church, but the qualities of a deacon are the qualities of a believer. And so then we come into specific context, and right now I am highlighting the case for women serving as deacons, and then I will highlight why I don't believe that is the proper understanding of the scriptural text. Deacons likewise must be. Through verse 10, we don't have a gender identification. Is it man or is it woman? Then verse 11, their wives, remembering this can be translated their wives or the women must be dignified, not slanderers. Let their wives be, the English standard says. In the case for women serving as deacons, the possible interpretations of 1 Timothy 3.11 rest on that singular phrase. If we want to make the case, we have to lean heavily on that singular phrase in this context, verse 11, their wives likewise must be, or the uh, interpretive option of the women must be. Now, look what happens when we move into verse 11. Their wives, verse 11, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. Very interesting. We don't have a gender description, 8, 9, and 10. Then we have this interpretive cause to stop and think in verse 12. Is it, okay, so can women be deacons or can they not be deacons? Is it talking about the wife of a deacon or a woman serving? What are we talking about? And then we come into verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. If there was lingering question from verse 11, verse 12 begins to bring more clarity. I would, I would submit the singular context for women serving as deacons is pulled from the beginning of verse 12 or the beginning of verse 11, their wives likewise must be. Then as we move into verse 11, notice how it's worded. It does not say, let deacons each be the wife of one husband. We know that traditionally and scripturally, husbands have wives. It does not say, let deacons each be the wife of one husband. It says, let deacons be the husband of one wife. So that's beginning to identify what gender is to fill the office. It's, it really, as I studied it more and more, I'm like, I don't know how people get there, but they get there. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their household and their children well. As we consider the ancient Near East context of managing the household, this is not the job of a woman. I'm sorry, women in the room. 
managing of the household is the job of the head of the household, which God has identified. You can be upset with me if you choose to be, but God has identified. There is the husband, and under the husband, the wife, and all are under Christ, who is under God. The specific context of 1 Timothy does not lend itself for the clearest understanding of whether it is men or women that are to serve as deacons. And it could be pressed. So how do we answer if it's pressed? Like as I walk away from this, okay, let their wives be. I see that's pulling toward men are to be deacons, but there's this question about this interpretive loophole. I want us always to remember, when we start to have a question scripturally, what do we do? You start where you are, then you broaden your outlook to the text surrounding, which we've just done, then what do you do? You don't just stop there. Like, I'm, I'm teaching you basic Bible study 101. Start in a small spot, then move to the verses around it. I could move them to 1 Timothy chapter 2, but that's not this sermon, where Paul literally says, I don't permit women to exercise authority in the church. I know that rubs us the wrong way, but that's the greater context of the letter to 1 Timothy. And then what do we do? Once we move out of this letter, then we have to start examining the whole of Scripture. So as we move out of the specific context, we're still left wondering, okay, who can be a deacon? Pastor, this is really confusing. I promise by the time I'm done, you're not going to be confused about what I'm saying. This is confusing because man doesn't simply follow what God's word says. They insert themselves, and then we have to untie it all so that we can follow God's biblical design, the broader context. If I'm making the case for women to serve as deacons, and this is how the argument goes quickly, the question that is raised in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, well, is it talking about the wives of deacons, or is it talking about women serving as deacons? That conversation will often quickly and immediately be pulled to Romans chapter 16, verse 1. If you have your Bible in front of you, keep your spot in 1 Timothy and flip with me over to the book of Romans, chapter 16, Romans 16. I'm equipping you to be able to have this discussion. Please don't get into arguments or fights with people. That's not helpful to the body of Christ. If you disagree with someone, disagree and be brothers and do all things in love. That's what the Bible calls us to We can disagree and have conversation about our disagreements. Don't argue. If I'm making the case for women serving as deacons, I am moving quickly from the interpretive possibilities of 1 Timothy 3.11 immediately to Romans chapter 16. Would you look at verse 1? I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea. I want to stop there for right now. In closing this great letter to the Romans, Paul commends a woman, Phoebe, a servant, that is the word I gave you, diakonos, a diakonos of the church at Centrea. The NIV, if you're holding the New International Version in your hands this morning, actually goes so far as to pull out servant and inserts a deacon of the church at Centrea. So now we have this conundrum of if I'm reading the New International Version, it literally just called a woman a deacon. So if I'm making the case that women can be deacons, you can bet that I'm going from the interpretive possibilities of 1 Timothy chapter 3 to the modern English translation of Romans chapter 16. I'm saying, look it, how do we contend with this? Women can be deacons. But as in all things, we have to continue examining the scripture. That's still cherry picking, by the way. All I'm doing at that moment is what is called proof texting. I am using the text to make the case that I want it to make. I must consider all 
of Scripture. And it's so pleasing to me to see people nodding their heads to that point. We must use all of Scripture. New International says a deacon. There's the interpretive loophole of 1 Timothy 3. There's this rendering here. Let's look more. I want us to see this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a diaconos, a deacon of the church at Centria. The plain reading of the verse seems to indicate that Phoebe was a deacon. But Paul goes on. Look what he says. I commend to you, Phoebe, that you may, verse 2, welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron, that's important, of many and of myself as well. Paul calls Phoebe a servant of the church at Centria and then identifies her service when he says she has been a patron. What does that mean? What is a patron? She is a benevolent caregiver. Uh, Even in not-so-distant past, you can go to uh, 1600s, 1700s, early 1800s, especially in England, maybe in America. I don't remember learning about this in history, but maybe. And you can read where there were wealthy benefactors of a community. A community existed because somebody wealthy was there. They would have been of a noble class or of an a, uh, uh, aristocratic, if you will, class where they use their money to employ the people of the village and this community exists because they have a patron. It's the idea that is here. Phoebe is a servant of the church at Centria. How is she serving? She is a patron. She is a benevolent caregiver. Even, Paul says, of myself as well. So, I submit, again, remembering, Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. We can begin splitting now, is Phoebe a deacon or is she serving in the way that God has gifted her? By the, by the description that Paul gives himself, Phoebe is using what God has given her to serve Christians around her. She has been a patron of many, help her on her way. He doesn't say, I'm sending her to serve now you. Do these things. Help her in whatever she needs that she may go on. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Phoebe serving whatever financial means she has. So now as we begin differentiating and remembering that diakonos is a word that describes serving someone who serves, As we continue looking at the greater context of Romans 16, to establish women as deacons, we're leaning on the interpretive possibilities of 1 Timothy 3.11. We're pulling in Paul writing about this servant, a diakonos from Romans 16.1, but we must then lean on that word. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, a servant. In the more broad context of the book of Romans, I have these three illustrations. Our sister Phoebe, a servant, Romans 16.1. Romans 13.4 says that the earthly authorities over you are God's diakonos. Romans 15.8 says that Jesus Christ was a diakonos to the Jewish believers. Romans 16.1 says that Phoebe was a diakonos of the church at Centria. So even in the broad context of Romans, we have different things being applied to this role of service. This is not, for me, the case begins to weaken as I consider, okay, diakonos is a broad term that means to serve. 
Consider again in Acts chapter 6 as we consider a broader context of Scripture. In Acts chapter 6 last week, we talked about the example of deacons, the first example we have of deacons in the Bible at Jerusalem. Who did they call for? The 12 assembled, remember what it says in Acts 6, the whole number of believers, and they said, choose for you seven men to meet the needs that are present. So even in the example of deacons being raised up in the Bible, we have men being raised up. So I start to see the biblical case for women as deacons weakening, while the case for men serving as deacons, that's not even a question. Men are to serve. We're not, we're not questioning if men are to serve. We're questioning, is it men or is it men and women, biblically? Man, I feel like a college lecturer this morning, and I never even went to college. Biblically, diakonos as an adjective is used to describe one who serves. Man, woman, child, sovereignly ordained powers and authorities over us, even the eternal son of God himself. Diakonos as an adjective may be applied to any believer. Diakonos, as a noun, as an office of the church, the church deacon, diakonos applies to men. If one wants to draw that Phoebe was a deacon and therefore women can be deacons or deaconesses, as they are often called, I do not say they are in sin, but I do say they are on weaker biblical ground. I think we may be suiting the culture. That becomes a tricky statement because you can go home later and start researching women serving as deacons throughout the history of the church. Why? Often the words that are often used is because there are no men. Then we should pray more, shouldn't we? Then we should teach men more, shouldn't we? I do not say they are in sin. I'm not going to say they are wrong and blaspheming God's word, but I will say they are on a weaker biblical ground to say that women can be deacons alongside of men. I think we are much safer, and I pray that we will never take a position biblically that leads us into, well, we think we are right. Listen, as a church, we know we are right to have men serve as deacons, but we would forever have to say, I think we're right to have women serve as deacons. And we don't ever want to stand on, I think we're right, biblically. We want to stand on what God's word says. Now, a note, I cannot deny, nor would I seek to diminish the experience of countless Christians throughout history and even people in this room who have been served by the ministry of women as deacons. I'm not going to throw stones at that. I'm not going to fling mud at that. Faithful Christian women have served saints throughout time. But I will say, if our aim is to follow Scripture to the best of our spirit-led ability and understanding, and it must be, the answer to the question, who can be a deacon, is a man. Pastor, you just took a whole ton of time to say a deacon should be a man. I did. Because in the world, I promise you, If you get into the church world and you have fellowship with other churches and other Christians, this will be a question. Does your church have women pastors? No, no, no. What about deacons? I promise you. Just start having conversations about your church and about the way your church does things. Does your church have women pastors or deacons? No, we don't. You don't? Why? Now you are more equipped to answer that question. I hope I've done at least remotely well. Okay, who can be a deacon? A man. Now, the qualifications. What kind of man? 
Everybody's like, oh, good grief, we just checked the time. No, this is actually pretty quick because the qualifications for a deacon are quite simple. And not. What kind of men ought we to seek as deacons? Last week, Acts 3 gave us three simple statements. Acts chapter 6, verse 3, it says this. Choose out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. You want to start with how you begin assessing men to be a deacon? Start with good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 draws that out a little bit more for us. And I have it defined in these ways. Men of good repute. Look again at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be. Again, in like manner, in light of all that an elder must be, the deacon in like manner also must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. The moral condition of the deacon is of paramount importance to God, and it should be to the church. The moral condition of a deacon is of paramount importance. It is interesting that both in Acts 6 and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible starts with the moral character of a man. We should not even entertain the thought of a deacon being one who is morally questionable. They are to be of good repute, good reputation. Look at the descriptions of them. He is to be dignified. I enjoyed our discussion Friday night. For those men that gathered, we talked about being a godly man is being a dignified man, both in private and in public. What does that mean? He's dignified. He is to be one that is worthy of respect. One that knows how to have fun, but knows when to be serious. Knows how to have appropriate fun. Knows when there are lines that should not be crossed and does not cross them. But he is worthy of respect. He is serious about his faith. He is dignified in his actions because God is holy and we too are to be holy. He is to be dignified. What kind of man ought we to look for? A man of good repute. You'll see good repute, moral character, first defined here as dignified. Next, he is not to be double-tongued, which for us probably goes immediately to he can't be a liar. Most of us probably see double-tongued and immediately think of he needs to be an honest person, the Bible doesn't disagree with you. Christians aren't to be liars. But double-tongued carries something more than simply not being a liar. It carries his speech matches from here, when he's hearing gossip in the church, to over here when someone else is sharing gossip and he doesn't get in on that, he doesn't chime in on that, he doesn't have comment on that, he's not double-tongued because he's a man of integrity, he's a man who is dignified, he keeps his tongue from being twisted, double, do you know the easier way that we would understand this? Double-tongued, like, pastor, help me understand that better. A deacon is not a two-faced man. A deacon is not one way here and then another way here. What you see is what you get, and I would submit that is the same of your elders as well. Pastors and deacons are to be genuine articles. They are not one way in one place and another way in another place. What you see is what you get, and what you get is what you see. He is to be dignified. He is not to be double-tongued. It's interesting here. Addicted to much wine. He is not to be addicted to much wine. We can easily understand that as a deacon can't be a drunkard. 
I'm not going to start trotting on people's Christian liberty. A deacon must not be a drunkard. This is very interesting in the New Testament context. Why? Because deacons would often be called ministers of mercy in the church. It's another, another title used for ministers of mercy. And part of a minister of mercy's job would be going to those who are sick. And if I'm going to those who are sick in the biblical time, in Timothy's time, it's not out of the realm of possibility that I have wine, which has for centuries been medicinal. Proven good effects. Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach. You got, all, you got all those issues, Timothy. You're all bound up in knots and just a disaster. Take a little bit of wine for your stomach. A deacon would very likely have gone to visit the sick with wine because they didn't walk down to Walgreens or the local pharmacy and pick up prescriptions. They used things they had on hand and wine always having been a medicinal thing. In the biblical context, you can't have a church deacon who's addicted to too much wine. Why? because it might not make it to the sick person. That's literally what Paul is saying to Timothy right here. Don't have a deacon who likes the wine too much, because that needs to be used for those who are sick. And if he's addicted to much wine, it might not get, I mean, just, it might not get there. It's hard for us to think about that. Then I started thinking about all the prescription drug addictions that exist in the world today. I started thinking about having people in the church going and picking up prescriptions for people and delivering it. You can bet I'm going to be thinking about this much, off, much more often when that situation arises in the future. That's a real thing in our day. Oh, I'm not a drunkard. I know you're not, but do you have prescription pills that you should maybe get rid of? In the biblical context, wine, widely used for medicine, don't have a deacon who is addicted to much wine. We certainly do not want deacons who are a drunkard. And then, not greedy for dishonest gain. Very similar to not being a drunkard, not being addicted to much wine, very similar is the one who is greedy for dishonest gain. Why? Because as ministers of mercy, you're also ministers of benevolence. And it is not unlikely at all that a minister of benevolence is going to have some kind of access to church funds to go and help Sister Louise down the road. I'm going to go pay her a visit. She needs some help. Did you help her? Sure did. Gave her some money, but you put it for yourself because you are greedy for dishonest gain. We want deacons who are trustworthy in all aspects. We want deacons who are trustworthy with church money. You want pastors who are trustworthy with church finances. You as church members want to be trustworthy with church finances, specifically of a deacon. Do you not have a deacon that is undignified, double-tongued, who's addicted to wine, a drunkard, who's greedy for dishonest gain? The moral character of a deacon matters. Men, I have this question for you. If you're in the room today, you're a man. There is a likelihood that you'll be considered by someone as a potential deacon in the future of this church. Is your moral character of the degree where the church could recommend you to serve as a deacon? Are you worthy of respect? Are you guarded in your speech, no matter the setting, no matter the audience? Have you mastered those vices of the flesh? And are you temperate in your Christian liberty? Are you trustworthy? Moral character matters, spiritual life matters, and I would say even more. Full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. We must not think that because it doesn't come first, that the qualifications of a deacon starts with their moral ability. Well, they're, they're a morally good person. No, we must get quickly to, are they a Christian man? We're going to have a deacon in the church who's not a Christian man. And we say in the, the sermon I've said over weeks, improperly filled, because I'm sure that in churches everywhere there have been pastors and deacons who aren't even saved. 
And everybody says, I have no doubt of this having happened. We must not think that because it comes first, the moral character of a man is the most important thing in the Christian faith. The most important thing always is one's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church deacon must be regenerate, must be born again, must be in right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As such, I would also advocate the deacon should also be a church member. You don't want me to go pull any Christian from any church and send them to care for you. You want someone who is committed to you in this local context who knows you, who can come and care for you so that we all may care as the church for you. In Acts chapter 6, the 12 called for the church to choose seven men from among them. Not from anywhere, from among them. In verse 9, we see, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, not only the need for the deacon to be a saved man, but also to be a biblically knowledgeable man. Look at verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The church deacon is not called to be a teacher, but having a solid biblical foundation is going to be extremely beneficial when you're visiting those who are hurting, those who are sick, those who are in need, those who you can comfort them in the greatest possible way. If I show up and I give you food and drink and clothing and I say good day to you, James says you've done nothing. A Christian is to minister the most important aspect of the Christian life the truth of God's word. And so it is incumbent upon a church not to, have an el- not to have a deacon who is perhaps the most skilled at teaching, but one who has at least a good handle on the gospel, one who has a good handle on sound doctrine, on belief and practice. And look, verse 10 calls us to examine that. Let them also be tested first and then Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 10 calls the church to examine. Let them be tested first and let them serve. Notice, let them serve if they prove themselves knowledgeable about XYZ. That's not what it says. Why are deacons' roles so often improperly filled? Because we've looked for the man who has the knowledge about this thing and put them there, but have they met the qualifications that God has set to put them in that office? It says, let them serve as deacons if they are found blameless, if their moral character is at the standard that God has set. Installing deacons is not simply a call to put the builder in charge of the building. It's not a call to simply put the mechanic in charge of the vehicles. It's not a call to simply put the banker in charge of the finances. It is a call to put a faithful Christian man in the role of responsibility of the care of the church. If their faithful Christian life is found blameless, let them serve as deacons. Deacon ministry, at its core, is Christian ministry. And at the heart of Christian ministry, your earthly skill means little. Is it helpful if a good Christian man is a builder and helping with the building? Yeah, well, that makes sense to us. But we shouldn't just have any man 
they should be someone who holds the mystery of the faith, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Your devotion to a life of repentance toward God and a faith in Jesus Christ is paramount. I have this question for you men in the room. Is your spiritual life one that the church can examine and find a born-again believer able to serve them because you are spiritually sound? Do you hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience? Lastly, home life matters. Moral character matters, spiritual life matters, and your home life matters. Not only is the spiritual life of a deacon important, so is the life of his home. Look at verse 11. Their wives likewise must be. We now have an understanding that we are talking about the wives of deacons. Must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons, verse 12, um, yep, verse 12, be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own household well. Whether an elder or a deacon, the conduct of one's wife and the way he leads his home is of great importance to God and it should be of great importance to us. You cannot have that idea of being a double-tongued man. Let me bring that home is the idea that in person you have the embodiment of scriptural definitions in pastor or deacon. But when that man is removed from that role, let's say this, when the pastor and his family leave the building, get in the car and drive home, I'll put it in my lap so that nobody in the room has to feel uncomfortable. Am I to my family what I am here, what I am to you, is that fluid? Or is there a breakdown where what you see is not what you get? In the secular world, <laughs> people don't give a rip about how people conduct themselves when they're not in the role that the world has put them in. We, we know this is true, and I learned it the best in the 90s with President Bill Clinton. That's when I learned this illustration. Who cares what he's done? He's, he's, he's doing the job as president. Like, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Who cares? As long as you do the job we've asked you to do, we don't care how you act. The kingdom of God upends that thought and says that if you don't conduct yourself well in private, you don't get to be a leader in public. The kingdom upends that. You are to be what you are always. And if that is not a morally upstanding man, a spiritually sound man, a man who leads his wife and his children and manages them well, you don't get to be in that role. Notice their wives, likewise, must be. A pastor friend of mine and I have talked long about the thought of how so many wives burn the ministry of their husbands to the ground. God cares about the moral integrity of a deacon, of an elder, of a Christian man's wife. Women are called to specific ministry in the church. And look at this. Deacons, the husbands of one wife managing their household well, their wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Why? Because a deacon is going to be in on the nitty-gritty of people's lives. I got to go visit Thelma. Why? She needs some money. Did you hear Thelma needs money? I got to go visit Louise is sick. We got to take some wine. That drunkard. Like, wrapped up in here is that the deacon's wife is going to learn things and know things, and she's got to have the ability, pardon my language, to shut her mouth. You can't be loose with your tongue. You've got to be quiet. 
I would say the same of an elder's wife. It was interesting to me in study that the pastor on elders doesn't talk about the elder's wife, but I would say that if your pastor is married, then his wife should be examined and should meet these qualifications as well. That's imposition on the text. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but you're not going to err to make sure that your pastor's wife is a genuine article. Men, do you lead your home in such a way that qualifies you to serve the greater gathered church? Does your wife help to qualify you for service? Women, wives who may look at their husbands and say, what a great deacon. Are you qualifying his ability to serve? The office of deacon is all too often either improperly filled, poorly executed, or a source of trouble in the life of the church. But this is not what God has intended. By God's design, look at verse 13. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. Literally, grow in their dignity and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ. By God's design, the office of deacon is beautiful and the work of deacon is necessary. And I pray as we move forward toward a season soon of recommending men to serve as deacons that we will take all of God's word into counsel. We'll talk more about this in coming weeks. For now, let us pray that God would raise up faithful elders and faithful deacons to serve us in the church. Heavenly Father, we come to you thankful for your word. And I recognize, God, my, my need for you to have taught the people here today. I pray, Father, as a church, that we would have a greater understanding of your design for the role of deacon, that we would pursue it and walk after it. Father, that we would look at the things that are difficult or that our culture does, and we would assess them according to your word, and we would live where your word tells us to live, not in our made-up understandings. Father, strengthen the men of our church, men who will, I pray, I believe, serve as elders, as deacons. Father, strengthen the men of our church simply as men in the church. I pray, God, that every man would be living to the qualifications of a deacon, the qualifications of an elder, that, that our wives would be able to view us as worthy of respect as we live for you. Father, that young women would grow understanding a man that they could find to marry because they have seen an image in a man in the church of what godliness is. Father, I pray for our young men. I pray that we would be modeling for them all of these qualifications, both of an elder, of a deacon, of just being a Christian who has been made holy and is to pursue holiness. Father, I pray, raise up faithful, qualified, desiring men to serve as elders, as deacons, as teachers, as missionaries, Father, as faithful Christians in the church. I pray, Father, that we would see the role of biblical manhood and womanhood, that we would stand against the culture and that we would honor you and bring you glory. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.